Today's reading is from Romans chapter 9, so it can be found on page 1136, 1137. So that's Romans chapter 9, starting verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the about the righteous Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. 
Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Thanks, Lottie, for reading that. Let me just draw your attention, if you've got it open in front of you, to verse 13, uh, where Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. Yeah, we'll come to that verse in a moment. But just as we dive into this chapter, we, we started back into Romans last week at chapter 9. We're carrying on with it. As we dive into it, you see, I think everyone, everyone's looking for the good life. It's, it's what we're pursuing. It's kind of what we're, we're chasing after. It's what we're uh, building in some ways. It's like we've got a building project, trying to add things into our lives to build it up. Everyone's looking uh, for the good life, whether it's finishing, maybe it's finishing a degree, maybe it's landing a kind of job that you want. Maybe it's the satisfying relationship. Uh, maybe it's something... It seems a bit smaller than that. Maybe it's just finding the right healthy diet at last. Find the right balance, the right kinds of things to eat. Maybe it's the right moral framework. This is the kind of framework you're going to live life with. Maybe it's a fashion book. I've got it at last. Yes, chinos and a blue check shirt. At last I found it. I can be satisfied with this forever from now on, every week, week in, week out. So I'll wear the same thing. And those pursuits, that kind of life building, it, it, I think it really takes off at secondary school age, doesn't it? That, that's when we start really being conscious of it and thinking about it. But it, from that point on, it, it keeps going. And it's looking for those things that make you feel that I'm okay. Life is at last the way it should be. And it's nothing new because it's what Paul's getting at here. When he, when he uses the word righteousness that's in this passage you, you've got in front of us that Lottie left. You see in verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, he, he uses it three times. This little word righteousness gets used. If you look down to chapter 10 and verse 3, that word righteousness is there again. And then again in verse 4, it's, it's there again. And in verse 5. And in verse 6, and if you look all the way down to verse 10, where Paul writes, For it is with your heart you believe and are justified. That, that word justified is really the same word righteous uh, that's being used there. Now, don't think when you hear righteous, we, we might use it in all sorts of different ways. When you hear righteous, don't think he's, he's just meaning kind of being moral in some way. It's about being, being kind of good. No, it's, it's a word from the courtroom. It's kind of got legal uh, legal connotations with it. It's a legal word, and it carries the idea of a, a positive verdict being passed. You've been declared in the right. You've passed. You've no need for a retrial. 
For those in academic terms, maybe, there's no need for a reset or even a viva. The verdict's in. You can stand before your peers and they'll hear the definitive verdict. Your life's work is okay. You're on the inside. And that might be, I guess, in religious terms, heaven. Just heaven. I know from this point on, I'm on the inside. I passed. It's all been done. Now, Paul's wanting to get us onto this, get us thinking about this word righteous here because he's thinking in terms of God as the one who's looking at our lives. God's the one who's, who's looking at us and giving the verdict. And you begin to get the slightly confusing issue. If you, if you understand it, you might be new to this letter, but if you begin to understand it, that's what's going on in in verses 30 and 31, when Paul's talking about the Gentiles, those who are, who are not from national historic Israel in the past, and the people of Israel. And the question's kind of like this. Look, loads of Gentiles who never seemed to be that interested in God, they, they, weren't, they weren't chasing after God. They didn't seem to be interested in him. They were outside of Israel. How come uh, they get given his positive verdict? How come they're being declared righteous while most of historic Israel who seemed, who seemed pretty serious about this, this God stuff, they don't get that verdict. How come the Gentiles get this verdict, this positive verdict, and the people of Israel don't? And as Paul begins to give his answer in these chapters, as he did last week and carrying on this week, I think he begins to show the Bible's thinking about two ways that you and I can live. Two different ways we can live and about why, whoever we are, why the Bible is going to say that you need Jesus Christ, whatever you th- else you think you need in life. He's going to say in the life that you're building, he's going to say you need Jesus Christ, and then he's going to say something about our responsibility, what we are responsible for. And that's what we'll see as we just dive into this chapter. Look, here's the first thing. It's around these two ways to live. And, and Paul's saying, in a sense, look, we will pursue or we will approach life as either grab or gift in those first few verses. What's the difference between those who get God's positive verdict and those who don't? Why would some people get God's positive verdict? And why why don't others? In, in those first few verses, 30 to 33, Paul paints a picture of, of two approaches to life and in a sense, two building projects. And one of them is God's and that's down in verses, uh, verse 33. He's, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. You see what he says there? It's from an Old Testament prophet where God says, see, I lay in Zion a stone. Now, Zion was the temple mount in Jerusalem. It was the symbolic heart, if you like, of the life of God's people. Life was built around this. I guess if you're a rugby fan, an England rugby fan, it'd be a bit like Twickenham. If you're a Scotland rugby fan, it's a sad day today because we're out of the World Cup. But if you're an England rugby fan, it might be a bit like Twickenham. You might say this is the heart, the heart of English rugby. Rugby life is built around this place. Apparently, as you, as you stand in the, the tunnel um, before you come out uh, onto the pitch at Twickenham, um, I, I've been told that there's, there's pictures of the, some of the great English players of the past, and there's a sign-up that says, we come here to win. 
I think it's designed to intimidate, intimidate any opponents. But here's the heart, the heart of English rugby. Life's built around that. And here, here with this temple mount, see I, in Zion I lay a stone. It's the heart of uh, the Old Testament people of God's understanding of their life. It's built around this. And here we've got God saying that he was promising to start building a new life. His own project. His own design. And he's drawn up the plans and he's laid the foundation stone. And it's not something he wants to keep, in, keep to himself. He's not saying, but this is mine. And I'm going to keep it from myself. No, at the end of verse 33, he says, And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Never put to shame. That idea that if you get in on this, if you somehow manage to get in on God's plan, you'll get to live with that positive verdict on your life. From now on, there'll be a deep sense in which you can say about your life, whatever else happens, I'm okay now. I'm on the inside. Whatever else happens, whatever muck-ups I make, whatever people say about me that might be true, all the things I've messed up on, there'll be a deep sense from which I can say, I'm all right now, I'm okay. And the way you get in, it's through, well, the way Isaiah puts it is believing in him. It's putting your faith in someone else. It's not about what you do, it's about someone else has done. And this approach to life is gift, not grab. It's what God gives. And the other approach, if you like, there's two ways to live. The other approach is to say, I'm not wanting to live life that way. I'm wa- I want to do my, my own thing, achieve my own verdict. With the abilities I've got, with my intellect, with my looks, with my money, with the opportunities, living where I do. And at this point in history that I happen to find myself, I'll build life as grab, not gift. I'll work towards my own righteousness. You might not use those kind of words, righteousness, but I'll achieve my own verdict. Then God, if he's there, and whoever else is looking in will be able to sign off on it. They'll be able to say, yeah, yeah, you've, you've passed it. You've got the verdict. I'll live life as grab, not gift. And if you begin to see those two ways to live, you'll understand Paul's answer to this question. Look, why have some, why have so many of the people of Israel not become followers of Jesus? And that's what he's saying in verse 32, if you've got it in front of you, chapter 9. There were many people in Israel who wanted life as grab, not gift. They didn't like the look of God's plans and they wanted to achieve righteousness. Verse 32, he says it like this. Not by faith, not trusting in someone else, not by faith, but as if it is by works. That's how they wanted to live. Not, not by trusting in somebody else, but by saying, look, I'll, I'll do it myself. Now, the way they did that, if you read through the story of God's people, the way they did that was to look at God's law in the Old Testament and instead of thinking, instead of thinking, we'll never reach those standards. As I look at God's law and I see the things he says about not being envious, about honoring your mum and dad, about honoring pa- parents, about family life being important, about not telling lies, about loving your neighbor. Uh, it's not just that they saw those things and thought, 
that's good. That is the good life. But I'll, I'll never manage it. I, I can't live consistently like that. No, the, instead they looked at it and thought, we can do enough. We can do enough to achieve and deserve the righteous verdict. Now, if you think the way to approach life is grab what you can and do it yourself, you'll always have problems when God starts to say to you, you can't do it. You need my gift. And that's what Paul is saying about his own people, the people of his day. You see what he's getting at in verse 32. Just have a look at it right at the end where he says, they they stumbled over the stumbling stone. This building project of God where he said, it's got to be my gift to you. You've, you've got to trust it. You can't do it yourself. You've, you've got to trust this and come into this building project that I'm, I'm building for life. And they, they stumbled over that because they thought, no, we want to do it ourselves. See, if you think you can be good enough, you'll never stop to consider you really need God's gift. In fact, you'll just begin to think it's a bit of a joke. You'll think it's a bit patronizing. Paul's saying, two ways to live. And we'll pursue life in one of those two ways. We'll pursue the good life either as grab or gift. And if you want the gift, Paul says... Only Jesus Christ can gift us the good life. Uh, back in chapter 9, verse 33, that, that quote from Isaiah, See, I lay in Zion a stone, and the one who believes in him, he's, there's a stone that's a person, will never be put to shame. The, uh, that foundation stone is a person. And you read through the chapter, and you, you know this, you, you get it already, but you read through the chapter, and Paul makes quite clear he's talking about Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can gift us the good life. He's the only one who can, he's the only one in this sense who can give you God's positive verdict, declare you righteous. And you think, why? Why is that? I've lived in Cambridge for about a year and a half. I went on a tour last week. I went on a little Cambridge tour with some other friends here. It was great. We walked around, saw William Wilberforce's statue, and we stopped at the Corpus Christi clock. You, you know this one? You'll know better than me. So this is like, um, you'll probably know all about this. I didn't know very much about it other than, it's a bit weird, isn't it? And what kind of a clock is that? It doesn't have any hands on it. It's got a weird thing on the top and lights flashing around. Funny thing with a giant locust on the top and the Latin inscription underneath. Look, if you know all this stuff about it, humor me, because I, I decided to read up a bit more about it during the week. John Taylor is the man who conceived it and funded it, and the insect on the top, he called it the chronophage. That's it. See, you know all this already. I'm just telling you stuff you already know. Chronophage, which, if you're good at Greek, you know, means time eater. The hourly chimes of this, this clock there's the sound of chains being dropped into a wooden coffin. It's nice, isn't it? Nice. And what Taylor said was, there's a quote of him saying this, basically, I view time as not on your side. That's the time eater on the top. And he says this about the chronophage. He'll eat up every minute, and as soon as one's gone, he's salivating for the next. He's a cheery guy, isn't he? He's, I mean... He must be delightful at a party. Um, um, 
but you think about that for a moment. You live 80 years. So you manage to make it to 80 years. That 29,200 days. That's 700,800 hours. That's 42,048,000 minutes. That's your life. There it is there, written up for you. It's every minute of your life. You hit 18 years. And 9.4 million minutes are eaten up already. They've gone. Coronaphages has swallowed them. You hit 40 if you've hit 40 and you've only got 21 million left on the plate. And you go and stand at Corpus Christi clock and you understand what it's saying. Every time that pendulum swings back and forwards, it's saying to you, time Time is running out. The chronophage is eating and he never loses his appetite, not for a minute. The life you're building is being eaten away. What are you grabbing for? Can you really reach it? Can you really hold on to it? Can you make it reach the verdict that you want to get in life? You stop and think about it. Look, whoever you are, whether you're, whatever stage of life you're at, in some ways there's just two things that we're all trying to do. Whichever background we've come from, whether we've, where we've been to school, whatever else, there's two things that we're aiming for. We're trying to, in some ways, we're trying to delay death and deserve heaven. You might not put it in those ways, but we're, we're trying to hold off the inevitable day of death as long as we can. And we're trying to reach for something that is, is lasting. A taste of heaven. Might not even call it that, but that's what you're reaching for. A taste of heaven, the good life. And it's why when look, chatting to, to friends who'd consider themselves atheists, who say, look, I, I think this life is all there is. It is worth genuinely asking. And maybe, look, you'd, you'd put yourself in that kind of uh, that kind of um, position as well. You, you don't really believe in God's stuff, but you're, you're checking it out. It is, it's worth genuinely asking this question, Luke, what, uh, uh, what they want to achieve in life and why it's important. Why do we want good exam results? Why do we want a good career? Why do we want a stable family? Why do you want a financially secure retirement? Why do you want to be remembered well at your funeral service. When I'm gone, then they'll know what I was like. Then they'll say all the nice things about me. Why do we think that way? Why do we want something lasting? Why do we want to delay death and deserve some kind of permanence? Now you read the Bible at all, and you know the answer the Bible gives is because it's what we were made for. You were made for permanence, to know and enjoy and worship the immortal God whose life doesn't run out. And he made you to have a life that wasn't going to run out either, so you could enjoy him forever. But in our sin, we've turned from him. And Paul puts it this way earlier in Romans. You can go back and, and read it. Speaking about people, he says this, Although people claimed to be wise, they became uh, fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and, and birds and animals and reptiles, turning from 
from God, he says, we still try and fashion something of lasting value in life. We try and grab something to make it, here's a thing of value I can have to worship. But he says, all you've got to work with is, is the created world that's passing away as well. All you can do is make an idol out of a person or something else you find in life. And Paul's saying, in turning from God, we'll, we'll never deserve heaven. And Corpus Christi's clock's chiming that we can't really delay death. Our, our reach won't enable us to take hold of heaven or to hold back death. Neither of those things are in our gift. Now, there is no work we could do that could give us that verdict. But Paul says, that's part of why he's writing this chapter, why he'd want you to hear it. He says, but it is in God's gift. He could give it to you. We need someone who can deserve heaven for us and not just delay death, but defeat death. And when you begin to see that, you'll understand what Paul is getting at in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 10. He's just explained the Old Testament law. It was meant to point his people and everyone. It was meant to point us towards faith in Christ. You, you can't do this good life that God describes here. You can't do it. You, you need someone who can do it for you. You need someone who can deserve, death, uh, deserve heaven and defeat death. And so in verse 6, just look, look at it with me because you've you got to follow through these words a little bit. In verse 6 where he says, But the righteousness that is by faith says... That do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Look, if you're, you're trying to get your head around that, look, stop and get this. Paul is saying, make sure you're not living your life thinking what can I do to deserve heaven? And what can I do to delay or defeat death? What, what can I do? What, what can I do myself to find some permanence in this life? What can I do to just to, to hide away and push away the inevitable death that's coming? And Paul says, look, you're not good enough to get to one. And you're not strong enough to deal with the other. And if you keep trying... If you keep thinking about life that way, you will obscure the one person who is good enough and strong enough to do it for you. Jesus Christ is God's perfect son and he lived the life that deserved heaven. And then he died on the cross to defeat the power of sin that brings death and God demonstrated Jesus had the righteous verdict by raising him from the dead. And then Jesus comes and says, he comes and says to you, you and me, whoever you are, he says, if you will put your faith in me, I will share that with you. I will give you that righteousness that verdict from God that says through Jesus for you death is defeated and heaven is deserved 
That's verse 9. The message of faith. This is what faith says. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he's reached heaven for you. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. He's defeated death for you. He's done it all. You've not done any of it. He's achieved heaven. He's defeated death. It's all him. And the word of faith says, I will trust him for everything. I will trust him for everything. And Paul says, if you will put your faith in Jesus like that, you will be saved. Or as verse 10 puts it, you'll be justified. You'll be declared righteous. God will give you that verdict. Through Jesus as a gift, God will give you his verdict. You're in. You're okay for whatever else happens in life from this point on, whatever comes at you, whatever mess you make of things, whatever people accuse you of, and whatever they accuse you of, you know, whatever it is, there's worse to know about you, but even with that, because of Jesus as a gift, he'll give you this verdict. You're in, you'll be okay, you're saved. And you might ask, look, what will life look like? What will life look like if you're living with that verdict? I'd love to be able to talk more about it, but we can't quite this evening. In a few weeks, we will hit chapter 12. I think it's in two weeks' time, and we'll hear these words, the beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, therefore, in view of God's mercy, and Paul will tease out for us all sorts of wonderful implications. Do you get this verdict? Here's the changes it's going to bring to your life. Here's the way you'll begin to think and need to think. Here's the kind of things you'll start to do. Here's how you'll begin to relate to other people. Now, come back for that. But here Paul wants us to get this clear. The life we need, it comes as gift, not grab. It comes when you humble yourself and you say, Lord Jesus, I have no right to heaven. And I can't delay death. But will you save me? You alone. And the final thing, just as we finish, and in some ways it's a, it's a hard word. It's, it's about our responsibility. And I think Paul would want us to hear, look, people, you and me, we're responsible for missing the gift. If you remember, look, the question behind all of this is why... What about the Old Testament? What about Old Testament Israel? Why haven't more of them followed Jesus? And Paul says, verse 12, look, with this gift, everyone who calls, that verse I read at the beginning, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Look, if you, if you call on Jesus, if you're willing to trust him, it's an open invite. If you're here tonight and you're, you're not a Christian, he says, if you will trust him, that his death on the cross, that he was paying the price for your sin, if you will trust him as Lord, if you call on him and say, Lord Jesus, will you save me? He says, tonight, he'll do that for you. It's an open invitation. So, so why haven't more believed? And in, in verses 14 to 15, 14 and 15, if you look at that, um, Paul imagines a series of questions. You can just glance down at it. And the questions kind of go like this. Look, how can they call if they don't know who to believe, if they don't know to believe in him? this Jesus and how can they believe if they've not heard and how can they 
here if there's no one to preach to tell them? And how can anyone preach unless someone's sent? And you know, just the way it says in the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The, the Bible talked about this. Somebody coming, it would be wonderful news, wouldn't it? And you understand the rhetorical point uh, that's being made. Look, he's imagining someone saying, look, God, it's, it's one thing for you to say you're offering this gift and, and all people need to do is believe, but how are they supposed to do that if they don't even know? And it's a fair point. But then from verse 16, Paul answers about Israel and he says, look, God did speak to them. He really did. All the way through the Old Testament, he was speaking to them again and again. He, he spoke to them about their need to, it wasn't by their own works, it was going to be about faith in someone, a savior who was coming. God spoke to them about putting faith in Christ. And, and look in verse 18, Someone says, well, didn't they hear if God was speaking? And the answer comes back, no, they did hear. They really did hear. So in verse 19, there's another question. Look, did they not understand? And Paul says, with the the Bible backing him up, says, no, they did understand. They understood exactly what God was saying. Well, what's going on? Well, just turn over to verse 21. But concerning Israel, God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And you understand what's going on. It's not that God didn't speak. It's not that they didn't hear. It's not that they didn't understand. All those things were true. It's that they just wouldn't accept the gift God's offering. Those who won't accept Jesus They always want to live life as grab, not gift. If last week we saw that God is sovereign in saving people, this chapter is adding an important truth that those who reject God, those who say no to him, it's not that they don't understand, it's not that they've not had opportunity, they're doing what they want to do. People are responsible for missing the gift God offers. And I guess so for those of us here, we're thrown back to verse 8 of chapter 10, where Paul says, but what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. God's word has come close to you. He said to you this evening, If you trust Jesus, you'll be saved. Will you come and do that? If you don't know him yet, would you ask him to save you? And for those of us who do, treasure the gift God is giving in Jesus. And let's ask him to help us to keep putting our faith in him. Amen. Let's have a a moment uh, to reflect and Matt will come and lead us.